0: This is Jason Poblet uh, with another edition of the Global Liberty Alliance podcast. I hope you're all doing well today. I'm coming to you from Alexandria, Virginia, and our special guest, uh, Robert Amsterdam, a fellow lawyer, is coming to you from somewhere in Europe. Uh, Robert uh, is a longtime international lawyer. He has more than 40 years experience uh, dealing in a lot of fascinating cases in emerging markets, He's also the founder of the Amsterdam and Partners uh, Law Firm, a boutique international law practice with offices in London and uh, D.C. One of the reasons why I wanted to talk to uh, to, to Bob, and we probably can't cover everything we want to chat about in one podcast, and I'll probably be doing a podcast with him over on his podcast, which we will encourage folks to listen to. We're going to put a link on that here. Is because we both share a, a, a passion for rule of law work, And human rights, and Robert's done a lot of work in that space. So, Robert, how are you doing today? And thank you for joining us.
1: Well, Jason, thank you for having me. I'm doing great.
0: You know, one of the things that you talk about quite a bit can be summarized as follows: you you tend to say that the world is a um, full of you know full of unchallenged impunity. Uh, For those non-lawyers listening to that, what's impunity? Why is it unchallenged and why is all this important to some of the work that that you do and that we do? Well, look, I think
1: uh, impunity is important because what it means is that an individual has no right to make those in power account for their behavior towards them. And this impunity means that in countries like Thailand, for instance, or uh, Cameroon, in Africa, uh, there are uh, ruling parties or juntas that basically can expropriate assets, jail people, do whatever and and not be held to account and you know that has that has occurred at various uh, parts of the United States during various times, but generally this this total lack of impunity is uh, often in what we would call emerging markets where mm-hmm. You know frankly, I've based my practice for the last forty years
0: how did you How did you come to do this sort of this sort of work? Take a little step back and tell tell us how you began and how you led to do some pretty remarkable stuff in fact, at one time, and I'd like you to share that story with us. How did you end up in 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 a prison in a in a very interesting country that is in the news all the time
1: well. Thank God I didn't actually make it to prison, but I was arrested in in Moscow. But I, um, you know, I got into this work at a uh, very young age as a result of dropping out of high school and going to Africa. And when I went to Africa and I was very young, I was uh, 17, I, uh, I realized that uh there was an entire world out there of uh people and challenges that really boggle your mind if you live within uh the kind of uh bubble of the united states or canada as i was then living and that you know there were no rules of the road in these countries and i found that fascinating uh and i thought there was incredible opportunity in these countries many of us uh particularly those who had the privilege of being in in as I was in in the former uh, Soviet space and also in Africa at that time. We had a tremendous amount of hope for the future, uh, particularly of the uh, countries newly liberated from colonialism. And uh, unfortunately, um, a lot of those hopes uh, have been dashed. Uh, You know, right now, I'm I'm working in uh, Cameroon and in uh, Uganda and in Tanzania for political leaders who um, you know are fighting against uh, really powerful odds in situations where the rule of law has been you know completely corrupted and I think one of the dangers um, is that now people know what language to use they you know everybody has if you will a common grammar uh in terms of you know making sure that you're charged with something before they jail you for 10 years and i think that as lawyers we have to make a lot of determinations about what you know who's playing with grammar and who actually have some substantive uh safeguards for individuals or Sometimes corporations who have their assets or their people, uh, you know, seized illegally in in some of these difficult countries.
0: What do you, what do you, what do you think about the um, international? You know, a lot of uh, human rights lawyers and NGOs that work in this space. Um, a lot of times, you know, I engage in what I call the uh, you know press release press release advocacy, and some of that has its merits, but when, when, when as, as a lawyer, when you tackle some of these problems and people spout, oh, you know, rule of law, corruption. Uh, you know, I had, there's a case here in, that I was working on a few years ago in a Central American country where some opposition leaders uh, decided to tackle uh, uh, the establishment, if you will. And by the way, when I say establishment, I mean both in the government and in the private sector. And they paid a very high price. These people were put on Interpol watch lists. They were without evidence, by the way, it was no due process whatsoever. And then all of a sudden it's, it's as if a queue, you said words, right? So I said, there was this queue out there. Then all these NGOs start issuing press releases against this person without even checking uh, to see if it was even accurate. So all of a sudden they accuse someone of corruption that may or may not be true. They put them on Interpol, they destroy their reputation. You've kind of ruined someone's life in the name of rule of law and anti-corruption i mean in your practice um, I'm, not, I'm not sure if you saw any of that in in the work you were doing with that tanzanian opposition leader for example but have you seen stuff like that where you have absolutely internet-
1: absolutely. absolutely i will tell you there are few things as corrupt as anti-corruption uh, <laughs> i right. am i am completely convinced that all of these folks who make their living screaming about corruption uh, are very often uh, hacks playing political games with, you know, this kind of PR bullshit. And, uh, you know, they very often destroy reputations with very little research. Mm. And the corruption of anti-corruption is actually, there's a, a series of books on it because, you know, often the, uh, the anti-corruption folks are paid by people who are economic competitors of the people they're going after. And uh, corruption exists. The uh, FCPA in the U.S. and the Bribery Act are, in my view, fairly ridiculous in that uh, often the money that's collected from these companies that are held up uh, in scenarios where uh they're basically extorted by governments um reverts to the treasury of first world countries as opposed to the countries uh from which it was supposed to have been taken and uh you know quite honestly i uh, you know i was briefing african governments on what not to do to go after corruption one of the things i said was the the over criminalization in in the u.s and in europe has uh It's stopped investment. It's put uh, the West in a terrible disadvantage with uh, countries like China and India. And if you want to go after corruption, make it all civil. Uh, Sue companies who you believe have engaged in corruption, incentivize people, whistleblowers to sue and get into a situation where uh, monies obtained by corruption are returned to the countries from which They've been extracted. But these, uh, these uh, writers, reporters, and NGOs that keep screaming about African uh, corruption but do very little in terms of actual uh, work to bring about change very often don't have a lot of my respect. I, I think they're almost their own industry. And uh, we we need to do a lot more digging and we need to get African countries to have their internal resources to deal with these issues as opposed to try to once again, impose uh, what are allegedly our standards on other countries.
0: It's almost this um, a new form of, have a friend and it's been written about where they call it a new form of colonialism where you have these, uh, I call it tyranny of NGOs, and I, I, I manage an NGO, so uh, it's, I see how easy it could be uh, to cause havoc in some of these countries, uh, and we go out of our way to make sure we don't do such a thing, because one of the uh, problems that I've seen as a practitioner, and who've also been engaging on that side on the human rights side, is exactly what you're talking about, you have this, um, you're making these judgment calls, and you're weaponizing. Now the law wasn't intended, right, to weaponize and use it indiscriminately against people without some type of a standard and trying to impose your value system on another country. I've never liked that. I think it's, again, very paternalistic and frankly un-American uh, to do some of that. But I've seen it, how it's destroyed people. And sometimes it destroys people who you need to make those countries a better place, right? Well, but
1: I'll tell you, one of the things I've found, I've I've worked very hard in in countries like Thailand and and Turkey uh, and Venezuela. And one of the things you're talking about being American, you know, we need to make reparations to all of the countries to which we endeavor to engage in regime change. Uh, there's a new book out by a guy named Vincent Bevins, B-E-V-I-N-S. It's one of the best books I've read on how the U.S. really took about a million lives in Indonesia in 1965. And, you know, you want to talk about human rights. The United States government has been engaged in, just recently in Bolivia, uh, such widespread Regime change uh, that, you know, if the United States is a terrible risk to the world in terms of human rights in so many ways. It's so frightening as I get older to realize all of the countries whose historic trajectories have been damaged or fractured. I mean, you could talk about Iran, you could talk about Turkey, you could talk about Thailand or Chile or uh, Venezuela or so many other countries where the U.S. is interfered again and again um, with with truly terrible results. I just uh, did a podcast about Korea and was uh, talking to the author there about the tens of thousands of Koreans that were killed or illegally detained uh, in the sort of anti-communist purges that took place under the Dulles brothers in the 50s. Uh, You know, one of the things I want to say, Jason, is I do not consider myself a human rights attorney. I've often said to people that human rights attorneys are people without U.S. passports. Um, When I see my Russian colleagues and my Thai colleagues who face jail day in and day out, and I know I've hit the jackpot because I have a U.S. passport that means Not not everywhere, for instance, not in China, but often means you don't get into that necessarily that type of uh, lengthy incarceration. And, you know, I think that's uh, something that, um, you know, it's another reason why I, I engage also in business litigation, because I think that you can become less of a lawyer if all you're doing is human rights stuff, because you're spending so much time in soft law that you, you have to be able to make sure you can still discharge your duties that's right.
0: That's right. In,
1: in a courtroom or as an advocate. So, yeah, I agree. I, you know, to be honest, I have a lot of uh, disdain for a lot of these guys who call themselves international lawyers and yet sit in boardrooms in Washington and think that that's <laughs> somehow doing international law.
0: When we come back, now you guys know why I wanted to have Robert on the show. He tells you exactly like he sees it, and that's that's awesome. Uh, When we come back, I want to pick up again on that reparation statement you make, if you could connect it to the Venezuela issue, because I know you've done a lot of work there. And we're also going to talk a little bit about the recent op-ed or open letter you wrote, if you you could share a little bit of your views on that on the ICC. Uh, We'll be right back. So Robert, before that break, you said a few things I'd like to unpack. We're not going to have enough time, so we're going to focus on two, two parts of this. One, the reparation issue. Can you explain a little more about that worldview and maybe use the Thailand as the example for it? Look, uh, the Thai
1: every ten years or fifteen years, the Thai elite in Bangkok murder their young. Uh, I was almost killed there in 2010 representing the Red Shirt movement and became aware of the Thomasat massacre of 1976 we just passed the anniversary of that i think it was october 6th then another uprising in 1992 then the uh, bangkok massacre which i witnessed in 2010 we tried to bring uh, the ties to the icc and when i dug in and, and and i wrote a book about thailand we took to the icc that was at one point a bestseller in, in Thailand when we dug we realized that the king and the the royal elite to a significant extent had been made into this godlike ruler by a puppet of the United States named Sarit who had been a military uh leader and had uh Used the uh, ennoblement of uh, the monarchy, which had been in in uh, in very much a constitutional and limited setting before that, to uh, strengthen the power of the anti-communist movement in Thailand. And then, as you know, ultimately the king became almost a deity. And it's against that uh, type of not only the making of him as a deity, but all of the laws in Thailand, Section 112 and other sections of their code that basically rob individuals of the right to freedom of expression. I myself was charged with slandering and defaming the Thai army. Oh um, and, and, you know, by the way, we managed to bring charges against the Thai prime minister for the first time in history. A Thai prime minister was cited for... Uh, uh, the murder of civilians. Uh, we uh, explained to the Thai people that their prime minister was a British subject, and as a result of that, we're able to make a very credible claim under 12B3 of the Statute of Rome that he should be as a British subject, subject to the uh, Rome Statute, and held liable for crimes against humanity. Um, and, and I think it, it had an impact in Thailand. And I'll tell you now the, when I see these young people parading in the streets and I realize that so much of what they're fighting is this monarchy that that we as Americans helped install. Uh, And when I was facing the Thai army with the red shirts and I saw them all carrying American weapons uh, and we lost a hundred red shirts in Bangkok in 2010. Uh, with horrible wounds and injuries from those guns, um, you know it, it. It certainly makes me take a look. I, I, obviously, Iran is another situation. Yeah. We removed Mossadegh, a a, a nationalist and, and someone who was incredibly popular for nationalizing the oil industry in Iran, and then we brought in the Shah, the Savak, and now uh, you know look at what look at what we we're now left with in Iran. Uh, this this uh, bogus benefit of regime change, uh, it's just, it's astounding you know what, what we as a country have done.
0: You know, One of the eye-opening, and by the way, I encourage all listeners, we're going to include links to the Thai protest because what's happening over there is quite fascinating. It doesn't end up in the news here, it should. And Iran was curious about that, and I've I seen it recently in some hostage cases that I've worked on. I mean, I've had to engage with the Iranians, frankly, for the first time in my professional career, and it's quite—it's—it's it's quite a different reality from the one that you see in the news all the time about Iran. And uh, it's—they're going to go through some really tough times. There are lawyers in Iran that I've dealt with who are very brave people, and I want to make a quick point on the lawyers and what—and what Robert was saying in the first segment about actual practicing law and what, what makes it different from human rights advocacy is that these people in these horrible in, in these places that are very horrible to, to lawyers, it's just not easy to lawyer, they take great risk to do it. And part of the work that we do at the Alliance is team up with those people. We don't go down there and tell them what to do, but we back, we back them up, we exchange ideas. Uh, you know, we pract- I still practice, uh, you know, this, the NGO is, uh, is part of what we do, but uh, I still practice law as Robert does. And to see what these lawyers do in places like Thailand, in places like Iran, in places like Cuba. I deal with a lot of lawyers in Cuba and these lawyers, you can't practice law, as you know, Robert, independently in Cuba. You have to work through the collectives in Cuba, or legal collectives. But these men and women go out there and they still they, they, they represent people and they will draft motions. And it's fascinating the lengths people will go to defend and try to build a, a culture of rule of law. Do you think I've seen it pretty universal in some of the countries I've been involved with? Do you see that? Is that generally true? Where you find lawyers working in these tough places, if you back them up, they'll take the risk and they'll do the work. Well, listen,
1: I mean, you know, I I was involved in the Yukos case in Russia, and uh, we had a lawyer named Vasily Alexanian, who was uh, he had AIDS, and uh, the the Russians withheld medication uh if he would uh turn on his client Mikhail Khodorkovsky he would have received the medication he refused uh he wouldn't violate the privilege and he died oh boy so um you know I I have seen uh incredible courage uh lawyers in Moscow like Karina Muskalenko the late Yuri Schmidt, uh, but also very brave lawyers uh, in in Tanzania, where I'm presently working. Uh, One of the brightest uh, barristers has uh, lost her license for no reason other than uh, staunchly defending Tundu Lisu, who I represent and who's running for president. Tundu was shot 16 times, took three years to recover, and just came back to Tanzania to lead the fight for freedom for his people and uh, she uh, Fatma who was uh, one of his main lawyers uh, a week before he was they, we had the attempted assassination her office was firebombed so and and you know in Cameroon today right now we have 124 uh, innocent people charged with breaching military law going to military courts for simply protesting and you know one of the things we're trying to do is reach out to those people involved in black lives matter and we're trying to say listen you know what as important as what you're doing is in the united states you need to export some of that to some of these african countries where they are abusing the hell out of their citizens and African lives have to matter, too.
0: Let me ask you, and we're going to give links to folks to all this. So uh, let's jump briefly before we take the next break to Venezuela. Uh, There's a lot that has happened down there outside the, uh, the media space. And I know you've been to the extent you can talk about some of this. What's your message to Americans about what's happening in Venezuela? And do you see a way out of this? Especially given what uh, the, the state between Maduro well, look, and know, the assembly, I'm
1: I'm, I'm essentially gagged, as, as you saw from the open letter I wrote, uh, complaining about this government's behavior, which is, uh, you know, completely over the top. I, I am not a believer uh, in the uh, type of uh, sanctions that the United States has imposed not only on Venezuela, but on Iraq, on Sudan, on hosts of countries. Uh, I think the sanctions regime has it generally all wrong. I think experts have concluded that sanctions are a failure. They are often an act tantamount to war without any uh, proper overview by Congress. And uh, I think we've made a terrible mistake in Venezuela. But, you know, again, it's all I can say. And, I, you know, I want to be blunt with people. I have uh, represented the opposition in Venezuela, and I am not going to speak out on behalf of governance in Venezuela. I've only been retained in respect to the issue of sanctions. Uh, and because I, I believe there has to be a negotiated Venezuelan way out of this.
0: Period. I think... Um... I think other people, believe it or not, people in the Trump administration may think the same thing. And uh, who knows, maybe the president does too. Maybe the president's been poorly advised, which is what I've I've said before. I think that um, the indiscriminate use of sanctions is sometimes worse than, uh, you know, no sanctions at all. And um, I'm, I've done a lot of sanctions work in my time and sanctions without a policy is um, is the recipe for disaster. I'm not saying that's what's and happened in Venezuela, but go ahead. Let
1: me tell you that that is what we've seen time and again. The United States doesn't have a coherent foreign policy. They just have bricks that they throw at people. And 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 that's a terrible tragedy. Um, and, you know, uh, I work a tremendous amount in Africa and we just don't have a foreign policy that's making any sense in Africa. Uh, China has an incredibly powerful toolkit it's using in Africa uh, and in Latin America, by the way, and in Europe, by the way. And we're just nowhere, not even near competitive with the Chinese. It's, it's a, we're in a shockingly bad situation globally.
0: When we come back, we're going to wrap up. Uh, Robert wrote this open letter on the uh icj uh I, I, if he, even though it's on venezuela sanctions you could still talk about it right it, it's okay to talk about that one
1: i can talk about that one because i'm the client in that one
0: that's right so when we come back we're going to chat briefly about that and then robert will share as our listeners as as guests always do about why americans who are listening to this should pay more attention why are these things important because a lot of this stuff that happens around the world, sometimes out of sight, out of mind, but it impacts us directly here. So we'll be right back. Hello, it's Jason with the Global Liberty Alliance. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Before we wrap up the last segment, I want to just share with you two brief uh, announcements. First, thank you. Thank you for uh, your support, for your questions, for listening, for sending us so many suggestions for guests and for uh, topics. We will continue to read them, and please keep them coming. So on behalf of Arthur, Cara, Mariana, Mauricio, Veronica, our network of lawyers and independent uh, you know, civil society leaders in the places we work, Thank you for listening and for uh, expressing uh, the enthusiasm for some of the work that they are doing uh, in Latin America and hopefully soon in other places. Second, in order to expand our work, we need your support. So please consider investing. Uh, Please consider uh, putting some of your uh, sweat equity if you want. We can put you to work. But we also need your money. We need your support. Consider investing. There's many ways to give. Uh, look and learn more about it at our website at www.globallibertyalliance.org. That's www.globallibertyalliance.org. You can click on the Invest button, and you can also check some of the work we're doing. Keep in mind, that's just an example of some of the work uh, we've done that we continue to do. And if you'd like to learn more, uh, please contact us. And let's get back to the show. Thank you very much. And we're back with uh, Robert Amsterdam. Uh, Robert is an international uh, lawyer. Uh, we've been chatting about many different issues, uh, including we, before we took that break about economic sanctions. And recently, the Trump administration announced sanctions on the um, International Criminal Court. Uh, but Robert wrote a piece. Uh, to the ICJ on Venezuela sanctions that I'd like him to chat about. If, in fact, if you want to chat about the ICC sanctions too, that'd be great. But before we do that, tell us a little bit about what gave rise to that letter and why you wrote it. It's a pretty powerful piece. I'm not saying I agree with all of it, but it's an interesting piece about how you juxtaposed the sanctions and the ICJ.
1: Look, you know, basically, uh, the United States... Uh, Treasury copied a resolution of uh, certain of the legislatures in Venezuela to uh, essentially threaten lawyers uh, with sanctions for even daring to represent the Maduro regime. And, you know, you have to draw a line always between whatever allegations you want to make about a government or a person and the right for that individual to be properly represented. And I felt very strongly that I was personally being attacked as a lawyer assisting the uh, Venezuelan regime solely in regard to sanctions, uh, which is, of course, allowed by the the regs. Um, And that, in fact, this overreaching by Treasury, in going after or threatening to go after lawyers uh, is just one more uh, step in this sort of total war that we've lodged against Iran and Venezuela and a few other countries, which has led to wildly terrific suffering of the people, but not a real dramatic change in terms of what's happening on the ground other than mass impoverishment. Uh, in Iran, it hasn't led to any form of positive outcome. Uh, although there are some that, you know, in fairness, say that the, uh, the nuclear deal, uh, for whatever that's worth, was achieved because of it. But certainly in Venezuela, we can't see any achievements. And the the unguided missile of sanctioning lawyers was just, in my view, a step too far. So we wrote to the, uh, you know, International Commission of Jurists. Requesting them to review this this latest outrage from the administration, and I agree with you. It may not be the president; it may be a group of sycophants that are uh, managing this process, who uh, seem to be just wildly uh, fighting yesterday's battles.
0: Yeah, no, I know. I on Venezuela, I, I I've never been a big fan of Maduro ever. Um, but even before this policy was implemented, um, it, we worked many years in trying to urge colleagues in the region to get more engaged and focus on uh, effectuate change in their own way. But I can tell you that when President Trump met with uh, Guaido, uh, his instincts were spot on and it, 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 and his comments were, I believe, the correct ones. And he, he didn't have a good readout. And I think the president, whether people love him or, or not, he has a good readout on people. Uh, and he didn't feel that this was the best option. Of course, within a day or so of him saying that, there were out there in the media, other officials uh, spinning about uh, the policy. But ultimately, uh, I think the president's instincts were right. And if he had been advised differently, maybe the outcome would be different. And again, sanctions are not a policy. Uh, I think policymakers across the board, Robert, you know, tend to use them because uh, they're easy, right? Uh, impose sanctions, you look tough, move on, but that's not the way you kind of move product in this town and attacking lawyers. And I've been at the receiving end of that. I'm not going to get too into this, but it, it happens. Uh, and, and that's great that you put this letter out there. And we're going to share it with our listeners. As as we, as we start to wrap up, because we're running out of time, uh, we like to ask all our guests uh, what they think the American listener who's listening to this podcast and most of them, most of our listeners do 50% of them do come from the States. They're young people or people in their twenties and thirties. Uh, and we receive letters from folks and comments, Hey, why should I, you know, why should I bother with this stuff? I mean, sure. These are interesting topics. Uh, sure. There's a lot of bad things happening in the world, but why should we focus on what's happening in Nicaragua and Cuba and Mexico or that lawyers can't do their jobs in you know places like, where you where you've worked and where you've advocated what what's your message to them and and for the young lawyers that are thinking about a career in this space, and I encourage people to seriously consider it uh what's your advice to them
1: well firstly you know um if you're a young person now getting into law, the odds are are very strong that you know the world the virtual world that you will be living in in twenty or thirty years will be wildly different than the one today. And your access to different countries and regions will be greatly enhanced. And you will be in a tremendous disadvantage if you're not familiar with what's going on in the world, because the world will be getting incredibly smaller, even though that's not how it seems now in a pandemic where uh, where travel and uh, everything else seems to be greatly restricted. In respect to getting into this field of law, uh, I would say that you need to be able to love travel. (laughs) I think that uh, we in the United States, uh, in our law schools and other places, have very high levels of academic achievement. Not the highest, by the way. Uh, I'll tell you that The lawyers I see from Russia and uh, in Africa, let alone in Europe, sometimes blow me away with their competence, uh, as well as China. Uh, But we're in a, a global competition in legal services, legal ideologies, rule of law. All of this is now becoming competitive. The United States today is not that shining place on a hill. We're going to have to fight for our place in a wildly competitive world where countries like China seem to have more soft power today than we have. And uh, this is a time for getting the best education you can get, seeing the world, learning different uh, languages and cultures and making sure you're ready for the uh, challenges of this uh wildly different new era that will be the post-pandemic world.
0: How, um, from your vantage point, as we wrap up, how much, talking about the pandemic briefly, how have you seen it? And by the way, travel's right. You have to want to travel when you do this. Just, uh, you can't advocate, uh, I believe effectively for some of the type of work that we do without getting on a plane, even during a pandemic and doing all you can to uh, help your clients, how do you? How has it shaped the practice that you're in the last year, as far as doing well, your it's, work?
1: It's it's killing my ability to effectively advocate. I'm somebody, who, you know, I'm banned. I think from eight or nine countries now, uh, but when I can get into those countries, or when I when I can, I want to be in the on the ground, meeting with people, and not doing what. You know, you say some lawyers do, which is turning it all into a PR exercise. Mm. And uh, by not being on the ground and by being terribly limited in my ability to travel, uh, it's, it's made uh, doing the kind of political work we do a lot more difficult. Plus, and this is something all your listeners have to deal with, um, when you're doing really sensitive cases, you need to know that people are listening to you. Right. And yeah. a lot of what I do, I try to do face to face so that I can avoid uh, uh, the eavesdropping that's going on all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, I think that's kept us from being uh, as efficient and effective as as a firm as we'd like to be. On the other hand, quite honestly, I think the lawyers that work with me would say I've never been more on top of my files because now I'm You know, exchanging uh, a ridiculous amount of zoom calls and zoom meetings with everybody, uh, which has been kind of cool, but I think we're all growing tired of zoom I think we all want to get back to normal life and, and obviously I wish all your listeners well that we all get through this quickly.
0: I'm with you there. I'm I'm over Zoom as soon as Zoom started. I'm a bricks. I'm a face-to-face type person. So uh, hopefully this will be resolved soon, and um, we can get back to our travel and or adapt to it because I think uh, we we want to keep doing the sort of work we have to be out there in the trenches. And um, even here in Washington D.C., as you know, uh, things are nothing but not as normal as people think. So uh, Robert Amsterdam, thanks again, Robert Amsterdam international lawyer with Amsterdam and partners. We appreciate the time he's taken. Uh, He's somewhere out in Europe, so I know you're extremely busy. Hopefully you'll come back again. I have a few topics I want to continue chatting with you about. And I think we're going to be getting together soon, maybe on your podcast.
1: Exactly. I look forward to it. Same here. Take care. Take care. You too. All the best.